We're going to talk about the glory of God this morning. What a blessed subject. The glory of God. Do you know the glory of God? Do you know it? Far too often, men think that they know the glory of God. And when they think they know, but they don't actually know, they create unintended consequences. Just like liberalism creates unintended consequences. One such series of choices that men thought that they were achieving the glory of God, history records, we call the Crusades. The Crusades. The Crusades were a series of four attacks. Right at the end of the 11th century, they begin. They lasted about 105 years. They were made by Western Roman Catholic men, largely, from England and France. The aim was to get Muslims out of Jerusalem, to reclaim the Holy Land, because this would be to the glory of God. In an address from Pope Urban II to his people in France, he said this, From you, above all, Jerusalem asks for help, because God has bestowed on the French above all other nations great glory in warfare, as we have already said. So then, undertake this journey for the forgiveness of your sins with the assurance of imperishable glory in the kingdom of heaven. To which the crowd responded and burst out in wild enthusiasm and cried aloud, God wills it! God wills it! When considering the glory of God, we really have to consider motive, desire. And beyond motive and desire, we also need to understand that there's short-term and long-term impacts of the glory of God being seen and being known. The motives of these men were corrupt. Surely you heard that as I just read Pope Urban's address to the French. The Eastern Orthodox Church in Turkey had been fighting the Muslims for years, but they never considered dying in the process of fighting Muslims to be martyrdom. Not so for the Western Roman Catholic Church. Death would be their forgiveness of sins, their eternal reward even the salvation of their souls for fighting the Muslims. And what about Urban II is so important to note? Well, at the time that he spoke, he was one of two popes. One of two. Yes, again, this is proof of the hypocrisy and heretical state that Roman Catholicism sits in. But nevertheless, he didn't want to be one of two. Urban wanted to be one of one. And so he had to contemplate to himself, How can I regain the sole power of the church? What can I do to reunite Catholic Europe under my leadership? And the answer, like any good heretic, was pick a fight. Those Muslims, they're the enemy, not our corrupt Roman Catholic system. Jerusalem is God's city. The Muslims have it, and we must take it back. It is the city of God, after all. Urban II was able to get Hundreds of thousands of Western European men rallied and willing to free the tomb of Christ from the Muslims. So their motive was corrupt. But what about the short-term consequences? Let me take you through the battle real quick. 300,000 men gather at Constantinople in Turkey. 300,000 men. And they start heading south toward Jerusalem. After a string of consecutive victories... They're left, their ranks have been decimated. There's only 20,000. But with those 20,000 men, they actually capture the city of Jerusalem. And on this day, 
July 22nd of the year 1099, Godfrey of Bouillon was offered the title King of Jerusalem. He refused to take the title, but he did take the title Defender of the Holy Tomb. Then Godfrey and the other Western Roman Catholic knights, they divided up that whole territory in Israel into four kingdoms. When they did this, they forcibly took over Eastern Orthodox churches and installed Roman Catholic priests. This so aggravated the Eastern Orthodox Christians that soon the Eastern Orthodox Christians decided to fight alongside the Muslims because they were more moderate than the oppressive crusaders. How's that for short-term failure? What about long-term? Have the views of the crusades improved over time? Were the crusades to the glory of God? Certainly in one sense, you could say yes. He gets glory from all things, and we know this. But were the crusades the result of righteousness? Were the crusades demonstrations of the power of God? Did they put the glory of God truly on display on earth? That's what I want to look at today. The glory of God displayed physically on earth. This morning, we're going to look at powerful manifestations of the glory of God. And I want you to know the glory of God because I don't want you to miss it. I don't want you to miss it in your own personal life, having your own unintended consequences for failing to recognize the glory of God. We want to exalt God the Father. We want to magnify Him. We talk about this in our membership classes. It's one of the high points of our class. We want to magnify God, magnify His works and all that He has done. The glory of God is also the answer to the most profound question that you'll ever ask anyone or that you'll ever answer. And that is, what is the purpose of your existence? The answer should immediately jump off your tongue. I exist for the glory of God. Pastor Eric's away. We're going to take a break from James, from suffering and trials. Everybody said amen. Let me take you on a tour of the manifestations of the glory of God on earth. You'll see that the capturing of Jerusalem in this season in July of 1099, 919 years ago by the Crusaders, it holds no resemblance at all to the biblical events that describe the glory of God from 2,000 and 3,500 years ago. This morning, I want to give you a better appreciation and understanding of the glory of God. We'll do this by taking a tour of four manifestations on earth of God's glory. The first one, the first stop in our tour, the manifestations of God's glory to Israel, to Israel. And to do this, you need to turn now in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 40. Exodus is a book about redemption. God's chosen people had found a providential refuge in Egypt. God had sent them 400 years before. There was a good Pharaoh. You know the story of Joseph. He became Pharaoh's right-hand man. But the times have changed, and the Israelites have a hard life, living under oppression of a wicked Pharaoh, even being made his slaves. And in 40 chapters of this one book, we see God take his chosen people out of slavery in Egypt to dwell with him at Mount Sinai. 
There are miracles and plagues along the way, even idolatry of the worst kind. And yet at the conclusion of the Exodus is a massive manifestation of the glory of God. Look at chapter 40. We'll begin reading in verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the month, of the first month, you shall set up a tabernacle of the tent of meeting. You shall place the ark of the testimony there, and you shall screen the ark with the veil. And the next 12 verses, God says, You shall, you shall, you shall. He is giving Moses the command again to build the tabernacle. Moses had already built it, but he moved it outside the camp in shame over that incident with the golden calf and the idol worship. But the Lord wants the temple and the tabernacle back inside the midst of the people. So we see in verse 16, thus Moses did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. So he did. Then verses 17 to 30, give the details of all the work that Moses had done. And they conclude with these words, thus Moses finished the work. We see the command of God having gone forth. We see the perfect obedience of man. You've got one million Israelites in the wilderness camping at the base of Mount Sinai. The tabernacle has been properly set up in the midst of the people where the Lord wants to dwell. Everything's in its right place, just as God commanded. And next, in verse 34, we read this. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all of their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. For throughout all of their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. God's glory was in their midst physically. His glory, so they could see it. The glory of God was tabernacled with them. God allowed his, his glory to come to his people in, the, in a tent, in a tent of meeting. He wanted his people to be with him, to dwell with him and him with them in their midst. The Hebrew word here for glory is kavod. It means glory, honor, abundance. The abundance of God was in their midst. Now, how do you get something infinite and take it and put it in the midst of a sinful people? God found a way. God declares of his kavod, his glory, in Isaiah chapter 48, 11, my glory I will not give to another. In Isaiah 6, 3, the angels in heaven, they start crying out in Isaiah's vision, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Psalm 23, verse 9 says, in God's temple, everything says glory. 
and powerfully here in chapter 40, verses 34 and 35 of Exodus. For these Israelites, God shows them his glory coming down in their midst to where they can feel it and experience it. You imagine what joy that must have been for them? The glory of God with the Israelites was visibly seen and, in a, and it was displayed powerfully in a cloud by day, but also in a pillar of fire by night. You know, we're going to take off and go on a camping trip soon. And we love campfires. We make big campfires. But think about a campfire that is unmade, but rather a campfire that is God-generated. And it doesn't last until you put your head on the pillow and allow the embers to burn out, but it burns right on through the night. You know, we live in, in Pismo. There's a fog bank that rolls in. This, this fog bank it consumes the whole area in which we live. God created his own fog bank around the tent of meeting. Imagine if, if a fog bank rolled in over the top of one house. That would be pretty miraculous, right? Not only this, but the cloud acted like a stoplight for these people. The text says that when it was lifted during the day, they knew that they were supposed to take off. But when it stayed over the tabernacle, they were supposed to hunker down and stay put. The, the cloud became a big traffic light for the Israelites through their wilderness wandering. And remember, this is the conclusion of the book of Exodus. It's the conclusion. It's the end. It's, it's the way that Moses wants to have you remember what the Exodus was all about. That the glory of God came down and was in the midst of the people. That's the exclamation point. Don't miss that. God had already been, however, going before them in a cloud by day and fire by night. Exodus 13, 21 and 22. But this time, something was different. What made the ending of Exodus different for the glory of God to come in and dwell among them? This was not the first time the glory of God was shown to them. God's glory in Exodus shows up often right after big failures of the people. You can consider Exodus 16.10. They're on their way. They're making their way south toward the wilderness in, in uh, Sinai. God has been providing water. The next day, manna is going to be littered all over the ground for them to pick up. And the Israelites traveling in the wilderness, they started grumbling. And Aaron tells, tells God, tells them that God hears them. And if you're looking at Exodus 16, 10, it says this. It came about as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel, that they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Next, the Israelites show up at Mount Sinai in chapter 19. It is here that God makes his covenant with his people, the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They'll be here at Sinai through the end of the book of Exodus, receiving the instructions of the Lord. But look at chapter 24, verse 16 with me. Exodus 24, 16. Moses had went up on the mountain, he and the elders together. 
And they saw Jesus in Exodus 24.10, and they didn't die. Now, that's pretty powerful in and of itself, a theophany. Christ comes to them in Exodus 24.10. And then Moses alone goes up to hear from God, and the text says in Exodus 24.16, the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called Moses from the midst of the cloud, and to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was a consuming fire on the mountaintop. A consuming fire. That's what they saw with their own eyes. This incredible experience. Drawing them closer to understanding God and his glory. It should strike some fear into somebody. You think it would make one or two people walk a little differently the next day. Maybe treat their kids a little differently the next day. Or their spouse maybe a little differently the next day. For seven straight chapters after this, God is going to talk to Moses. Seven straight chapters. And while talking with him, you know all too well what happens next. Seven straight chapters is too much. Can't talk that long. What's going to happen? The people are going to gather up the gold and Aaron's going to lead them into idolatry, which is what happens. They make the golden calf. We're in Exodus 24. They're making the golden calf. Amazingly, in his anger, God doesn't consume them with fire. But in his anger, he does kill 3,000 of the idolaters among them. And he says to Moses, you know, I had plans to go up with you to the land that I had promised you. I want you to go. Take off and go now. I'm going to send an angel with you. You'll get the land that I promised with you. But because of this wickedness, because of this idolatry, I'm not going to go with you. I'll send my angel. The people in Moses, they, they are so saddened by this turn of events. And Moses turns to God in prayer, pleading with him, God, how are we? supposed to be anybody amidst all these people on earth if you're not with us. It's you alone that could save us, that could allow any of these things to happen. You must come with us. And what is the result? Where we started, Exodus 40. God said yes to Moses. And then God came and dwelt among them in the tabernacle. So pleased was God with Moses' prayer He even gave Moses a personal display of his holiness in Exodus 34. Why was Exodus 40 so powerful a display of God's glory? Because of this. Because of the rebellion that preceded it. Judgment was made to become grace. That's pretty powerful. Exodus 40. Judgment made to become grace grace. This all happened in 1446 BC. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8. We're going to advance the conversation 480 years later. That's a few generations, right? 480 years later. It's at this time that God gets out of tabernacles and tents, and he is given a glorious temple in which to dwell. David was not allowed to make God's temple, but Solomon was. Solomon makes his own house, 
He then makes God's temple. And in a massive celebration where the priests bring in the ark in the most holy place and where they are sacrificing innumerable sheep and oxen, we read this. 1 Kings 8, 10 and 11. It happened that when the priest came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Again, this cloud. And again, God's glory. And it takes over and it dominates and fills this space to the extent that the men have to get out. And as much as you saw God's glory manifested after human failure in Exodus on multiple occasions, it is equally important to note that in Exodus and here in Kings chapter 8, the glory of God was manifested after obedience. And when you consider that obedience requires God to speak first, again, you get the glimpse of the grace of God. He speaks, gives us a chance to obey, and then glory. You know, I think this sometimes offends our sensibilities. I think at times we read these things and we just carry along reading the text. It happened to those people over there. That was some kind of God. Is it happening today? Is it happening anywhere around us? Often we we come to these words on these pages and our minds don't slow down enough to truly consider what is being done here. Have you ever been involved in a building fire? Did you ever watch firemen have to retreat because of the smoke and the flames. These priests had to retreat because the glory of God in the form of the cloud was so overwhelming. There was no structure fire, just a massive thick cloud that made staying in the temple impossible. The Israelites witnessed the glory of God again. It was manifested to them again. A whole new generation, 480 years later, again saw the glory of God. They saw it and they knew it was God's glory. God not only had it happen to them, but he also told them, record these things. They would have known about the Exodus because they would have been reading this stuff for 400 years. And they would have anticipated or understood immediately what the cloud and the glory of the Lord could look like. And it was perceived before them. And we get a chance to read it today. You're getting the sense from the text that the glory of God is a big deal. Are you feeling the weight of the kavod of God? It's a heavy subject. Our attention should be locked onto it. When it shows up, we should be awestruck. We should have a great desire to see more of it. I want you to consider Psalm 100 verses 2 and 3. It says this, serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Why then did he make us, one will say. And you should ask this question. And Isaiah records the answer for us when God said to him in Isaiah 43, 6 and 7. God said, I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. 
Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. All of humanity was created by him explicitly for his glory. And none made in human form generated more glory for God than his son, Jesus Christ. This takes us to stop number two in our tour of the manifestations of the glory of God. How can we talk about the glory of God manifested? We first go to Israel, but we then have to make the next stop at Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Stop number two, the glory of God manifested by Jesus Christ. Turn in your Bibles to Luke. We'll look at the second chapter. The glory of God was there in the temple. It filled the temple. It radiated out of the temple, pushed the men out of the temple. And what I would have you know is that if you read Ezekiel eleven twenty-three, you'll see that the glory of God departs from the temple. God's glory leaves the temple. It departed to the east. When Jesus arrived in Jerusalem for his final time to go to his sacrificial death, on that cross. From which direction did he approach? He approached from the east. Luke 19 records that he descended the Mount of Olives on a donkey from the east. Do you realize that that descent was prophesied in Zechariah 9.9? Now, let's just take this one step further because Zechariah puts out another prophecy in Zechariah 14.4. Christ is coming back again, right? He's due to return. Do you know where he's going to start his return? Do you know where he's going to land and put his feet on the ground in his return? To the east of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives. It's going to crack in two. And it's from there that he'll descend on the city. The glory of God encompasses every detail of Jesus' life and ministry. You're in Luke chapter 2. We're going to look at Jesus' arrival, his birth. Let's see the glory of God here. It first appears by angels to the shepherds at night. You see in verse 9, And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David... There will be born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. The glory of the Lord has come again to the Israelites, announcing this time the arrival of the Messiah, the Son of God. The arrival of the baby boy brought down the glory of the Lord to these few shepherds in a field. What would that look like to be standing there as one of these shepherds? What, do, do we need the physical description of how that lays out before us? The text doesn't give us that. But it was so powerful that these shepherds standing there needed to be told by the angel, do not fear. 
Because immediately their response to the glory of the Lord filling the place was fear. Several years later, Luke records for us the great glory given to God by his son when Jesus was baptized. Turn to Luke 3, 21 and 22. His arrival gets God glory and gives God a chance to display his glory. His baptism, we'll read now. Luke 3, 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven. You are my beloved son. And in you, I am well pleased. Let's think about those words, well pleased, for a second. Well pleased is to be glorified. We know that worship and praise are both well pleasing to God. Worship and praise of God give Him glory. They are activities of glory to God. So here, in the act of the Son of God being baptized, God audibly announces the glory having been given to him by this act. The father makes a similar announcement in Luke 9. You can turn there now. Luke 9. Here's a powerful demonstration of the power of God and the glory of God. Luke 9 is where Jesus takes Peter, John, and James up on the top of a mountain. You know this as the transfiguration account. And Luke 9, 29 says this. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him and they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, They saw his glory and the two men standing with him. Peter goes on to make his comment. But in verse 34, we read, while he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Can you imagine this? If you're Peter, James, or John, have you read Exodus? Have you heard it preached in your synagogue, in your house of worship? Have you heard it preached? What about 1 Kings 8? What about the accounts of all of the opportunities for the glory of the Lord to be shown? Have these men heard the accounts? Do they know the glory of God having been displayed in the Old Testament text? Absolutely they do. And you know that these men have read the Exodus accounts. They understand the cloud. They understand the pillar of fire. They understand the voice. And what happens next? The cloud surrounds them. And with the cloud, the voice of God. Powerful. What an incredible account of God's glory being seen. You know, it's, it's, this is what's amazing about First Peter chapter, uh, uh, Second Peter chapter 1. 
when he says that having been there on the Mount of Transfiguration and having seen that as powerful as it was, we have something more sure. He says, I want to share with you something more sure. He says, the word of God is more sure than seeing Jesus Christ transfigured. This was an an incredibly amazing event for these men. God truly manifested his glory on earth in front of their very faces in his son, Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us this about Christ. He is the image of the invisible God who is the creator of all things himself. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of, the glory, of God's glory and the exact representation of God's nature. And Paul says this of the wisdom that we have concerning Christ being the glory of God that none of the rulers of this age understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. This is the wisdom that's been imparted to us. Doesn't this raise question for you? It seems so improbable. We would ask, why, oh, why, God, the death of your son? Where is the justice? The justice comes in two ways. God's wrath needed to be satisfied. And Christ demanded, required, and wanted victory over death, which we would never achieve of our own. These two things. As a result, we understand very clearly that Christ is going to come again. He's going to come again in justice, and he will return in glory to exact justice on the earth. We know this from Matthew twenty-four thirty which records Jesus having said, and then the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. The earth will yet see again, physically, visibly, the glory of God and the person of Christ coming in judgment. His death was victory and his coming again will be proof of that victory. Yet, Is it the case that his glory is even seen today? How? This glory that comes out of the Old Testament, this glory that comes in the gospel accounts from 3,500 years ago and 2,000 years ago, is it the case that the glory of God is anywhere to be found today, right now? If so, where and how? Is it even possible? Well, this takes us to stop number three on our tour of the manifestations of the glory of God. The manifestation of the glory of God in stop three comes through the church, through the church. Stop number three, God's glory manifested through the church. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 5, 27. It is here in this text of chapter 5 that we're told that the church is the bride of Christ. There's an incredible, mysterious parallel between the church and marriage. Marriage, which is one man and one woman, a husband and a wife, and Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. We see this in Ephesians 5, and it is here where we read that Jesus will, in verse 27... Present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, 
but that she would be holy and blameless. So the glory of God is found and will be found continually in the church. And we are the church. Does this sit well with you? You know, having just read from Exodus and 1 Kings and Luke, these powerful manifestations, clouds coming down, fire going up, voices speaking and resounding from heaven. Does it make sense with you? Does it sit well with you that in the church, the glory of God is to be manifested now here among us? How can it be? Where's the cloud? Where's the voice? Where's the temple? Where's the tabernacle? Where is the sinless perfection in man? Well, here's how it'll be. Look at Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21 in Paul's prayer. Paul prays this in verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. To him who is able, this is God the Father, right? Of course it is. He's able to do incredibly and powerfully things beyond what we could ever ask or think. And what power is it that works within us? It's a person of the Holy Spirit. He has given us a new nature. We are a new creation in the Holy Spirit. He's removed our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh. And by this, by this regenerative, regenerative work of God, the Holy Spirit, we have God's power and God's Spirit in us. And Paul says, to God be the glory in the church. This means that there is glory in the church, and it means that the glory created and abounding in the church belongs to God and for Him alone. And it is through us, through our changed lives. Corporately, together as a church, you must first understand that we are a body. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about this. It says that you are individually members of Christ's body, some being the arm or the elbow or the finger or the ear or the eye. Each member of the body carries out a specific function, which is to the benefit of the whole of the body. This gives the body unity in Christ, but diversity among its members. And this is to the glory of God, corporately. But then individually, members are responsible to God for their own behavior. Consider 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? We asked a second ago, how could this be the case? Where is the tabernacle? Where is the tent? Folks, you're the tent. You're the tabernacle. The presence of God has come down to dwell among and inside of men and women. That's what he wants. And brothers and sisters, that's what he has gloriously done. God's glory is manifested on earth in you. When you, a formerly dead, wicked, sin-filled individual, received the gift of God's grace and were regenerated 
filled with the Holy Spirit of God, affording you the blessed privilege of having your sin debt paid and being given the righteousness of Christ to be able to stand justified before God. And now, walking in newness of life, you begin practicing the full bounty of the fruit of the Spirit all to, say it with me, the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, do you realize every day 275,000 sinners are born and 114,000 people die? That the whole face of the earth is teeming with rebellion to God. And yet, in the midst of all the swarms of fornicators, blasphemers, and drunkards, God gets glory every day from those whom he has redeemed and has pulled into his bride, the church. Your newness of life in the spirit should make you more kind, gentle, giving, loving, serving. It should make you more long-suffering, patient, meek, and faithful. With your life, you should be well-purposed by now that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. It should be no problem for you to meet the expectations of Psalm 96. In verse 3, tell of the glory of his glory among the nations, his wonderful deeds among all the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the people, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. If you're lacking, turn to Ephesians 3.16. If you're lacking in seeing the glory of God, if you're lacking in doing the glory of God, he has a provision for you. It says in verse 16 of chapter 3, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through the spirit in the inner man. How crazy is this? What, what incredible provision is this? That if you ask for power in the spirit from God, he will give it to you out of the abundance of his glory for the purposes of his glory. You know what? He gets his glory from you and me, derelicts, degenerates. He lifted us up out of the trash bin and chose to put his spirit inside of us. How much more now, having been justified, shall we live for him all to his glory? It is a debt of love. It is a debt of service. You know, this is foolishness. God tabernacling inside of some human heart. It's foolishness. It's foolishness to all those who are outside of here who are perishing. But to us who have been called and chosen, this is the power of God. And it is, friends, the glory of God. And it is on display now. God dwelt among the Israelites in a tent. His presence was with them. Jesus Christ was truly Emmanuel, God with us, and they saw him. And now we, at present, are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. This is just the present dispensation of God's grace poured out to man, this church age that we live in. 
2,000 years of Christ's power. Where those deserving judgment, you and I, have received grace, so much so that grace dwells inside of us. How about the power of God in that? How about the glory of God in that? How powerful do you have to be to make glory happen through your enemies? You've got to be pretty powerful. That's our God. Just to make sure that we're all on the same page here, God makes glory for himself through his enemies. And if you're visiting us for the first time, or maybe you've never really considered these thoughts before, I just want you to think through this with me for a second. There are churches out here today, Roman Catholicism, others in evangelicalism, and they will teach a kind of Christianity that is man-centered and not God-centered. It is focused more on the glory of man and less on the glory of God. Man up, God down. They believe that man is born neutral or that better than that, that he's born actually good. But the Bible doesn't say these things. The Bible says that you're born dead in your sin and trespasses, fully unable to be pleasing to God in any way and completely satisfied in that condition. But this is the power and the glory of God, that he would be the alone, that he alone would be the author of salvation to pull something that's dead because he's the creator of that thing that's dead to be able to choose of his own will to look at the thing that was dead and to know what's best for that thing and to choose some to put himself inside of. This is what God has done in salvation. It is a plan and power of God to choose, to elect, to predestine those. And it's our job, having been predestined and chosen and elect, to respond in total obedience to him out of love and service and worship and praise. This is the gospel, friend. And I would pray that you hear this today. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God made a way through Jesus Christ for your sin debt to be paid. And not only your sin debt, you need more than your sin debt paid to get into heaven. You need to stand before God in perfect righteousness, in a sinless state, in the glory of Christ. And that's why Christ takes off his heavenly garment, his robe of glory, and he puts it on you an unworthy, undeserving, sin-filled individual, making you stand right in the presence of God. If you do not know this, if these words are not ringing true in your ears, or maybe as the Lord would allow, they are starting to ring true, I would plead with you, find a brother or sister today and talk with them. We want you to know that salvation comes by way of God and by his word being preached. I want to take you to stop four on the tour of the manifestation of God. Stop four comes if he does this work inside your heart. If you didn't know yesterday if you were going to heaven or hell, if you did not know yesterday where you were spending eternity, and if the Lord is purposing salvation in your heart, you have this to look forward to, eternity, eternity. And that's stop four. God's glory manifested for all of eternity. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation 21. We'll close our time in Revelation 21. 
as we read, I really want you to pick up on some of the themes from this morning. They come out of the text here in Romans or Revelation 21. We talked about the Crusades and their fighting for Jerusalem. From Exodus, we spoke about the tabernacle and God's desire to dwell with his people and to be among them. Jesus is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And the Holy Spirit is said to indwell us, making us new creatures. Listen to the new creation God has going on for all of eternity from Revelation 21, starting in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no longer any death. There will will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. For the first things have passed away. This is the eternal state. This is where we'll be forever. And let me say that for a Navy guy, it's hard text to read. Because it says there's no sea. There's a river, but there's no sea. We're headed toward perfection, sinlessness, painlessness, the constant abounding for all God's creatures to bask in God's glory. What an incredible eternal state, the glory of God ever present. Where do you see that? Well, read with me from Romans or Revelation 21 verses 10 and 11. John says, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. And showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone and the stone of crystal, clear jasper. The new Jerusalem will come down out of heaven, fully loaded with the glory of God. And we don't have to fight Muslims to get it. But read with me further from Revelation 21 and verse 22 which has more detail about the city. You need to know these details. 22, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, For there will be no night. Its gates will never be closed and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it and nothing unclean and no one who practices abominations and lying shall ever come into it. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. The city of God is illuminated by the glory of God. That's a power plant. You'll never escape the glory of God. It'll never be mistaken. It'll always be on display. 800 years before John wrote these words, the prophet Isaiah said this, no longer will you have the sun for light by day, nor the brightness, nor for brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. And your God for your glory. Did you catch that? We will have God 
for our glory. He wants to share his glory with us. Does that cause a contention in your mind with Isaiah 48, 11? My glory I will not give to another. Well, you remember he spoke this for his own sake, that his name would not be profaned. And he has now regenerated his enemies who did profane his name. He has given us new life in his glorious son. So we know it is truly the case that those whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also, you got it right. He also glorified. The eternal state is stop number four, where God's glory is manifested on earth. Let me tie this all together. I want to put this on a very practical level for you. Because I don't ever want you to miss the glory of God. After all, it's your purpose in life. It's the reason why you exist. If you miss the glory of God, you will create unintended consequences, just like the crusaders, misguided by bad theology and have lasting unintended consequences because of your actions. Just consider how you think about Muslims right now. They're the enemy. They're evil. What about how they think about you? How they think about us? Those are some of those lasting consequences. Consider of liberal San Francisco, all the host of unintended consequences that come from liberalism that plague that city. I'm reading reports about excrement through the streets, strung among needles, rampant drug use, homeless camps abounding, and criminal drug activity all over. And as nasty as San Francisco is, so too your own heart will be if you miss the glory of God. Don't miss the glory of God. Are you prepared to deal with the unintended consequences of your own theology? If you miss the glory of God in the church, you will end up church hopping and shopping to seek a continual spiritual euphoria. And in the meantime, you'll never practice service, long-suffering, patience, and grace. If you miss the glory of God in dating, by leaning in for a kiss to show affection, you may find quickly that you do not have the power to lean out. Are you prepared to deal with the consequences that follow? If you miss the glory of God in parenting your children, maybe dad won't engage in discipline because he wants to be only loving all the time, but lets the kids do whatever they want. You will reap the whirlwind. Stay clear of unintended consequences by focusing on the glory of God. Please find a good church. Discipline your children. And if you're dating, keep your hands tied. and Put duct tape over your mouth. Your actions have long-term and short-term effects. They also expose the motives of your own heart. As we look at a dad who would dismiss the word of God and choose to be only loving to his children continually and miss the call to be the disciplinarian in the home, you will miss the glory of God and you will serve self because it's more pleasing. You will reap the whirlwind. We must spend our lives daily in worship and praise to God, achieving for him all the glory that he is due. How must we respond to the idea 
that God has done this inside of us with thrilled hearts again to know him, with minds enlightened to the truth of God, with thoughts enraptured with the presence of God in us and with us. And brothers and sisters, with actions that continually display the glory of God. Jude gives us a fitting response and conclusion when he says this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God, it is our great desire to know your glory all the more. What a blessed time thinking of your glory, considering how you've displayed it and how you continue to display it. It comes through us. We have no more excuse. We must be agents of your glory, displaying your glory, what you have done in us. You have made all things right by sending your son to fix our sin problem. Let us return to you that which a slave so rightfully should. Praise, honor, glory, and worship. You are so worthy. In Christ's name we pray, amen.